Thanks be to God. We're going to find something similar to this account in Numbers in the Gospels today. Um, you know it's going to be interesting when Austin says the scripture is kind of a fun one, and we're going to find that in our gospel text as well. Just as a heads up for where we're going to be heading over the next several weeks, we will have somebody other than myself speaking for three weeks um, after today. So next week, Steve will be teaching for us. The following week, Stephanie is going to be speaking, and then Austin will be speaking. Um, I will be um, gone for a couple of weeks uh, as we are expecting a baby. So we're, we, we started this guest speaker schedule next week in faith that the baby is going to arrive. Um, so we're going to have a, a lot of changes for our family personally in the near future, especially for Cora. I, I don't think she knows what's about to hit her. Um, you know, some change is easy and some change is difficult, and I think this change will probably be the difficult variety. Um, but, you know, changes in the air um, outside. Temperatures are beginning to cool, I think, or they were. Some leaves have already started changing into those various fall-like colors. If you leave today and look over to the, the southeast side of our property, you'll see that the black walnuts have started making their descent to the earth. And in nature, that change all just seems so scripted, seems punctual. I mean, the changing of seasons happens like clockwork. It seems so easy and matter of fact. But not all change is that effortless. For those who may have any type of training or quality control responsibilities in your place of employment, you know firsthand how difficult it can be to change habits and mindsets that are deeply ingrained in the minds of your coworkers or employees. I mean, convincing somebody of the need to change is difficult enough, but then trying to help lead somebody into that change is, can, can seem all but impossible. And it, can quite honestly be a little bit frustrating. And I have to believe that Jesus experienced some of those frustrations when dealing with his disciples. The way that Mark organizes the material in his gospel story, I think, draws out or highlights some of those issues, maybe especially in the material that we've looked at over the past several weeks. We touched on this material briefly last week from Mark chapter 8, where Jesus said, look, if you try to hang on to your life, if you try to hang on to or elevate your concerns above everything else, you will, in the end, lose your life, the very thing you're trying to save. If, on the other hand, you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And then the account that we focused on last week in chapter 9, where he says, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to be first, become a servant of all, and gives us that example of receiving the children. Lay down your ambitions for just a moment and receive the children. It seems pretty clear, I think, the consistent pattern of Jesus to the disciples is, not all, is look, it's not always about you. It's not always about your rights or your position or your well-being. There is much more at stake here. So the point of that instruction is that this heated rivalry between you 
it has to come to an end. But in the very next verse, in chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, this is where we find John's mind. Mark chapter 9, verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So what do we see from the disciples as we begin this next section in Mark chapter 9? Well, they are still trapped in this way of thinking that is absolutely obsessed with status. In the text we read last week, Jesus confronted a lot of those internal rivalries that were centered around position and status within the coming kingdom of Christ. And it seems that he brought those rivalries to an end, but now we get to the next verse and that rivalry just continues. This time it's just with somebody else. It is now this unknown exorcist that John is fed up with. And so he comes to Jesus to inform him about what's going on. Look, this man is casting out demons in your name, but he's not with us. So we told him to cut it out. Now, maybe this unknown exorcist is somebody who has not at all attached himself to Jesus in any way, shape, or form. Maybe he's not a man of faith, and he's just trying to capitalize on the powerful name of Jesus for personal gain. For personal reason, reasons or advancement, I think that is certainly a possibility. But I think it's also quite possible that this man did have faith in Jesus and just wasn't a part of the smaller group of disciples. So this man was doing something that was obviously good, and it's good for the one who is possessed by a demon to be delivered from that torment. But John here in this story is more concerned with the fact that, well, the guy doing this good work isn't one of us. He can't engage in those compassionate ministries. That, that's our gig. That's our territory. That's what we do. Now, the irony in the story that Mark is telling us is layered and pretty rich. John is saying, we are the compassionate ministers of your grace and power, but we would rather withhold this compassionate ministry from that individual if it's at the hands of somebody else. And then secondly, if that wasn't enough, the disciples have already in this very chapter revealed the fact that they are completely incapable of dispelling an evil spirit from somebody. And yet here John is saying, look, Jesus, this is our business. We're terrible at it. We're completely ineffective, but this is still our business. Leave it to us. Have you ever known somebody like that? Or maybe you found yourself adopting some of those frames of mind. Uh, I know I can't take advantage of that opportunity or that promotion 
because I have these prior obligations or these prior commitments, but, but I don't want you to take advantage of it either. If I can't experience the benefit of this opportunity, I don't want you to experience it either. It, it reminds me in some ways of that story that we're told in 1 Kings at the beginning of Solomon's reign. If you remember those two women that are living in the same house and they each have a child and one child dies and the mother of the deceased child claims, well, that's not my child, that's your child. My child is the one over here that is living. And so they take this case to Solomon and Solomon sets up this scenario that in the end reveals that the, the mother that was claiming to be the, the mother of the living child was content to allow that child to be cut in half with, with a sword because if I can't have the benefit of the living child, I don't want you to have that benefit either. And the rightful mother of the child urges Solomon, no, no, give the living child to this other woman. I can't bear to see the, this child killed. It's this whole concept of, if I can't take advantage of this opportunity, then nobody else should be able to. Now, I think this is certainly a, a potential temptation we may experience on an individual level, but I, I think it can also be a great temptation for the church at an institutional level when competition becomes a great force. This whole way of thinking that, that we can't celebrate the good that is done by, by another congregation or by another organization in our city because it wasn't us doing the good work. And if, if they are celebrated, we are not. If they look good, then we don't. And that is a faulty way of thinking that we need to guard against and really we, we need to resist it. John here says, look, man, back off. This is our work. You aren't with us, so you don't deserve these responsibilities. So he is clearly still struggling to grasp what Jesus had been pounding into their brains as of recently. So Jesus hears what's happened and pushes back. He says, oh, you've got it all wrong. If, if somebody is doing these great works in my name, even if their hearts aren't in the right place, it won't be long if they're doing these works in my name. It won't be long until they have faith in me, until they are following me. He goes on to make the point, if they aren't against us, they are for us. If they aren't against us, they are for us. Now, our tendency is to do the exact opposite. Our tendency is to say, well, no, if they aren't, with us, then we, we can completely write them off. We, we tend to come up with more restrictions and additional designations to tr try to differentiate ourselves from others. And Jesus, at least in this story, says, no, that's not how you go about these interactions with other humans. He says, no, the criteria for who is on our side is much more broad than we typically want it to be. I think this is such an important thing for us to remember and consider, especially in light of the tribalistic moment we live in, where, where to be included in pretty much any group of people, especially an ideological group, to, the, the specificity surrounding the requirements of inclusion are, are dizzying. 
This is one of the reasons that I love that Jesus makes this so broad. That the designation about who is for us is incredibly broad. He says, if somebody so much as gives you a drink, gives you a drink of water because of me, they won't lose their reward. Somebody gives you a drink. Think about that. Somebody gives you a drink of water, not if they have clearly defined and very specific and beautifully articulated theological positions about these issues. Did they give you something to drink? Let's continue reading. So we're as we get to verse 42, we're going to find what seems to be maybe a disconnected teaching from Jesus, but I think it's all going to tie together in the end. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This sounds pretty disconcerting. He says, if you cause one of the little ones who believe in me to stumble or sin, it's better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If you're unfamiliar with what that image is communicating, a millstone was a large and extremely heavy stone that would be turned on top of another large stone by a donkey. And any grain that passed between these two really heavy stones would be ground or crushed. And each stone could weigh upwards of a couple of thousand pounds. So if you have one of those tied to your neck and you're thrown into the sea, what happens? You're done. You sink to the bottom of the sea. You're never seen again. Now, that sounds disturbing for us, but I think it had an even greater impact for first century Jews because for the first century world, this wasn't just an extreme hyperbole, but there were folks actually drowned in this manner. Josephus, the the well-known Jewish historian, relates one such account. This was a very troubling but very real-life thing. It was further complicated by the fact that if you sink to the bottom of the sea with one of these millstones tied around your neck, it made the recovery of a deceased corpse difficult, if not impossible. And for Jews, this was a really big deal. This is very disturbing. Vivid imagery intended to make a strong point about how serious it was if you caused a little one to stumble. Now, what might this reference to little ones be? Maybe he's talking about the children that earlier, the previous section, that he had welcomed into and placed at the center of the circle. Or maybe it is the unknown exorcist from the beginning of this section, back in verse 38, a a person who perhaps had faith, Maybe somebody that had faith, but it was faith in its infancy or it was faith in a volatile place. Whatever the case might be, whatever that phrase little ones might refer to, I think the broader point is the same. And that is simply that our actions and our words, how we carry ourselves or or how we instruct others, it all has the potential of impacting somebody's faith and impacting somebody's faithfulness to Christ. And this is a serious, serious matter. It can be 
difficult and quite honestly scary to come to terms with that, but it's something that we must think about. And I think for us as the church, this would certainly include folks that have been badly damaged within the church, maybe because of an abuse of power or an abuse of authority or sexual harassment or sexual abuse, which was some of the ongoing scandals, not only in our world at large, but some of the scandals that are currently taking place inside the walls of the church. This probably isn't far from our minds. Jesus says, if you cause a little one to stumble or sin, it's serious. It would be better if you had a stone tied around your neck and you were thrown to the bottom of the sea. But I don't think it even has to be some of those extreme evil examples. I think this can take place in a variety of small ways on a daily basis. And what we need to understand is that the simple fact that how we go about this life, it impacts people in a positive or a negative way. You know, to be honest, I'm dealing with this a little bit on a personal level um, as our daughter is now at the age where she is absorbing everything. So while I'm listening to Wilco's hit song, Casino Queen, in the car, she is actively working to commit that to memory, which is probably not the best song for her to have in her memory bank, but it's there. And what, what's that? Nonsense. It's, it's okay. Yeah, and I don't think it's a, a particularly harmful example of this. I, I bring that up only to stress the point that she is a sponge. And everything I do or everything I say or how I respond, it is all going to impact her in some way. The way I deal with other people, how I respond to various life circumstances or how I go about my faith, it's all shaping to some degree how she will understand the Christian faith and how she will understand the God we serve. And to be honest, that is quite terrifying. It is a weighty responsibility. You know, earlier this year when we went through the book of James, in the first chapter of that book, James uses this image of a mirror. I don't know if you remember reading that, but he uses the image of a mirror to make the point that there's a difference between hearing the word of God and then just going about your life as you always had been, or there's a difference between that and hearing the word of God and then doing it or acting in accordance with it. And he says, if you only hear the word but fail to do it, it's like looking at yourself in a mirror and then leaving the mirror and forgetting what you look like. Now that can be a little bit confusing. That, that image may not make sense, but I think it begins to make a little more sense when we consider the fact that in the first century world, the image, uh, the image of a mirror was used a lot of times to describe the pursuit of moral improvement on a personal level. So the mirror wasn't just this tool that I would use to look at myself and make sure that I'm put together enough to be seen in public, but it was also a way that I could look into it and see the example of somebody that I wanted to be like and then look at myself in that light. So does that make sense? That The mirror was a way to look at somebody I wanted to be like and then look at myself and see if the two were lining up. 
And I think one of the implicit teachings from that section in James relates to the possibility that others are observing us, others may be imitating us, and their observations could be shaping the way they go about life. And again, I personally think about children. I don't buy into the notion of generational curses in the fundamentalist sense. However, there is a sense in which which this image that James uses describes something similar to that. If we as adults, or if we as maybe some of those who are a little more mature in the faith, if, if we haven't modeled healthy ways of working through our vices, our children or those who may look to us as an example, they are likely to repeat those vices. They are likely to be trapped in those same ways of thinking if we don't model healthy ways of moving beyond that. All of that to say, the details of our lives, they matter. Of course, they impact our personal development, but they might also be affecting somebody else's faith. And this is not at all to suggest that individuals have no moral agency or no responsibility or that we are completely responsible for somebody else's choices. I don't think that's true, but we do influence others, intentionally and unintentionally, and I think it's appropriate if we live with that in mind. The way I'm going about this life might be impacted. Somebody. It might be shaping how they view the faith that I'm a part of. Let's continue reading. So we're going to find another seemingly disconnected statement from Jesus, but again, I think it will all tie together. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, get rid of it. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Why? He says, because it's better to enter eternal life with an incomplete body than to go to hell with a body that is completely intact. Now, this seems to be pretty extreme, right? It's one thing to lose a body part in an accident, but to personally and intentionally take this action on yourself, that seems to be counterproductive because our bodies aren't everything about our personhood, but our bodies are a part of our personhood. So that being said, I don't think the point is that Jesus wanted individuals to go out and take these actions. He wanted them to work through their sin. 
He wanted them to work through their sin and move beyond it in his grace. So instead, again, this is a very sobering image that is used to communicate an important truth. And that is that our sin, both systemic and individual personal sin, is a very serious issue. It's serious. And I am a believer, and I want to be a proclaimer of the grace and mercy of God. I believe that the grace and mercy of God is so much bigger, so much more far-reaching than we could even hope for, or than we could even believe. But that doesn't negate the seriousness of sin. Jesus says if you're caught in these patterns of sin, you need to be willing to sacrifice personally in order to move beyond that. I like how Flannery O'Connor described her use of of vivid imagery. She said, I use the grotesque the way I do because people are deaf and dumb and need help to see and hear. And I think it's possible that there's some of this going on. And maybe there's some of that going on through the use of another image in this text, the word that is translated in many, if not most, of our English translations of the New Testament, the word that is translated as hell. So there it is. Let's just get after it, right? I was really hoping on being on paternity leave by now and just leaving this text for Austin to deal with next week. Well, we'll leave that for you, Steve. Um, so I, I, you're going to be gone? Okay, good. I'm happy to hear that. So I was hoping for Austin, that, that Austin would be able to take this because that's kind of the approach I like to take. If we come to a difficult text, hey, Austin, it's your, it's your week. But alas, here I am. So, and to be honest, we don't have time today to take a deep, deep dive into this, but it's here, so I think it deserves at least a brief word. Now, first things first, when it comes to this conversation, I I think this conversation has to be approached with great humility, and I hope to approach it in that way. I think any conversation about the afterlife should be cloaked in humble terms because we simply don't know much at all. When it comes to the afterlife, we, we just don't know. We can piece some things together from the biblical witness But I am not at all interested in suggesting that I know what the afterlife is like. I don't. If you ever hear me say that I do for sure, just tell me to shut up because I don't know. So it has to be approached with humility. Secondly, we have to understand that imagery that is used in this text is used to convey a point. And I think that greater point is what we want to focus on. And the point is not necessarily in regard to the specifics of a post-mortem hell. So what temperature are the flames going to be in this post-mortem hell? And what is the duration? And what is the level of consciousness for inhabitants of that place? Those are not the questions that I'm interested in addressing. But rather, I think what the point that Jesus is making here has to do with is, again, the very real effects of sin in our lives. So maybe the simple question we would ask is, well, is hell a real place? And I think it is based on what we see Jesus saying, but do we know the nature of it? No, we don't know the nature of it. For Jesus, it seems to have been a real place, but the real place he is referring to 
The word that he uses in this text that is translated in our text as hell in the original language is a word, Gehenna. Gehenna, which comes from the Valley of Hinnom, and that was an actual physical place. So for Jesus, the hell that he is referring to, it is a physical place. It was located just south of the city of Jerusalem, and everybody knew about this place. It's a place that had a troubled history. We read about it in the book of Jeremiah, a place that had a pattern of infant sacrifice throughout its history, sacrifice to the god Moloch. Now, by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, Gehenna is this burning garbage dump. So garbage from the city of Jerusalem wasn't hauled off to a rural area hundreds of miles away. It's taken outside of the city and burned in this dump. It's a place of maggots, a place of worms, a place where the fire kept smoldering because trash is continually added to the pile. Now, before the time of Jesus, in the intertestamental period, so the several hundred year period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, because of the nature of this place, Gehenna, Gehenna started to be used as an image of hell. And so Jesus seems to pick up on that image and uses this vivid picture to implore people that hell is not an inviting place. It's not desirable. Whether we are talking about the hells that we create on this earth or a hell of the afterlife, I think the only sure conclusion we can reach is that it is a desolate place of being. But I think the bigger point, and I think what we need to focus on as we read this text, is the fact that our sin has very real consequences. It's a serious matter. It's not a joking matter. It's not something to be trifled with or something that we can excuse or ignore because, well, we live under the grace of God. And so because of God's grace, personal ethics and Holiness, those are these archaic, unnecessary terms, and we can simply discard them because we've progressed beyond that. I don't think we can read the words of Jesus and reach a conclusion like that. I think what he's getting at is that our sin, systemic and personal, it is serious, and it has real-life consequences. There are natural effects of our sin. See, the Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 5. The end of that chapter, he says, look, where sin increased, what happens? Well, grace abounded all the more, but if we continue reading into the beginning of chapter 6, he asks this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us, we good? <laughs> Do you not know? I'm sorry, I just got thrown off a little bit. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen. So whatever the nature of the afterlife might be, 
We simply can't know for sure. But I think one area of consistency within the biblical witness is that our sin has severe effects. It creates hell. Not just in the afterlife, but it will make this life a hell too for us and for others. And we need to take that seriously. Does that mean we we cut off our foot if we are being led into a place of sin? I, I don't think that's what Jesus would have for us. I think the point he is communicating is that this is serious and we need to be willing to sacrifice, maybe even sacrifice greatly in order to end the destructive effects of sin in our own lives and the destructive effects that our sin may have in the lives of others. Would you stand this morning? Austin, if you join me as we prepare for the Eucharist. This morning, as we reflect on this text, and as we come to the table, considering the words of Jesus about the serious nature of our sin, I would invite you to join me in this simple prayer We call it the Jesus Prayer. It's a part of our weekly prayer service on Wednesdays. Throughout our short liturgy on Wednesdays, we repeat this prayer four or five times. I think it's a great prayer, simple, short, but a great prayer for us to commit to memory. It just goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So would you join me in this prayer as we approach the table? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, as the the song we occasionally sing says, convince us of our sin. Convince us of our sin. We don't want to hide from that reality in our own lives. We, We want to face it. We confess it and we turn from it. So Jesus, convince us of our sin and lead us to your grace. Lead us to your mercy, which is made available to us and expressed tangibly this morning in this meal that we are about to share together. Lord Jesus, we come to your table expecting to meet you, understanding that that encounter with you may sometimes be uncomfortable as you highlight those areas in our life where change is needed, but we invite your conviction convince us of our sin, we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?